listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. John chapter 6. We spent the last couple months in the Psalms and today we start back in the Gospel of John in a series that we've called Come and see that you may believe and have life in Jesus. As we follow John through the first five chapters and as he recounts to us his time with Jesus, we've seen that the gospel of John is repeatedly over and over again inviting us to look upon Jesus. And there's two effects that it has as we look upon Jesus. Well, there's a number of effects that it has, but two sort of main pathways that, that those who have not known him, would see him in all of his worth and turn from their wor- the worthless things and treasure him above all things, that they would come and see and believe and have life. And then that those who have known him, because I think we could be tempted to say, well, I know Jesus, so I don't need the gospel of John. Um, but that's just not true, that even for those who have known him, that we would take fresh glimpses at Jesus, our marvelous Savior, and have our hearts reassured in Him and our minds renewed in Him, our affections stirred for Him, that we would then daily believe and have life in Him. It's a continued believing, right? Looking freshly at Him and believing over and over again that Christ truly is my Savior. And what does that mean for me? That He is who He says He is. And what does that mean for my life today? The Christian life is not just you look at Jesus once and then love Him almost temporarily and then find some other joy somewhere else. It's a life constantly growing in knowing Him, in looking at Him, which which leads us to loving Him more and more deeply and finding a more deep and constant joy in Him. We we live lives in a world filled with constant problems. I know we say that quite a bit, but it's true. It really is true. It's just constant problems, sometimes big ones. So we must constantly look upon Jesus who is greater than our greatest problem and, and see how He is able to meet us in the midst of their problems or our problems and to keep us and to care for us through those problems. If, if we are to have a steady gladness of heart, if we're to be a joyful people, Jesus makes that call actually that we would have this joy about us. It doesn't mean that we're always just the most bubbly in the room, that we're the loudest in the room. That's not the kind of joy Jesus is talking about, right? But if we're to have a gladness of heart, that's trusting the Lord, that's glad in Him in the midst of our present problems and the problems to come, most importantly, we must see how He is able to take care of our greatest problem, our eternal salvation, right? So it's constantly, the Christian life constantly just looking at Jesus, seeing how He has taken care of our greatest need through Him crucified through providing a way of salvation. and There's no other way to be saved. There is no hope outside of Him. As we look upon Him, we're reminded of this truth. And if He has taken care of our greatest need, then all these little problems and things that I endure today, surely He is able to care for me in that need too. 
right? So looking upon him, I think it helps remind us of these truths. The Gospel of John is just grabbing at us to recall these truths. And in today's passage, here's what we're going to see in light of that. There are extraordinary problems that people are facing in the passage we're in. We're we're beginning in chapter 6. But there is an even more extraordinary Jesus who cares about those problems and ultimately cares about their greatest problem, right? So in light of that, let's pray, and then we will read the Word of God. Lord, we come to you, and we once again, Lord, we, we do believe this is the pinnacle of our worship. This is worship still. Singing is not the only part of worship. The worship gathering is that your Word is front and center and that it informs what we sing And Lord, as it's preached, that you would apply it to our hearts. The very same truths we were singing, as we hear it proclaimed now and preached through your word, would you apply it to our hearts? So this then is worship. We we learn you. We know you better. We, We come to look upon you. And the hope is then, Lord, that we would love you. That we would know you for who you truly are. Lord, I do pray. I pray, Lord, for all the false beliefs that we have of you, that you would just crush it. The things that we have thought of you that are not true of you, Lord, would you renew our minds and teach us a better way? Would you do this even through your word today? And Lord, we know we can, I can stand up here and I can have pithy statements, I can have illustrations, I can be the best speaker None of that matters except for your spirit applying your word. So Lord, would you meet us? We come and we open our Bibles and in a a sense, it's an act of faith knowing that you speak through this Bible, that you have words to say to our hearts and minds today. So Lord, renew our minds, reassure our hearts Teach us a new way, Lord, a better way of you. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you. Have your way with us. Be exalted in Jesus' name we pray. And the church says, amen. Amen. Follow along with me as I read John chapter 6, verse 1 through 21. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down 
about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. Chapter 6 is the longest chapter in the entire New Testament. Aren't you glad we didn't do all 71 verses? It's the longest chapter in the entire New Testament, so we've broken it up. But we do need to know something. We need to know that all of chapter 6 goes together. It is the hardest thing for a preacher to break up passages. It is the hardest thing. I'll tell you. I was tempted to do all 71 this Sunday. The Spirit of God was at work in me, just restraining me, I think. Um, But it's so hard because you're seeing it all together, and you're like, how can we get the main point when... When it's all tethered together, how can we do this? But, so we've, we've broken it up. I'm doing verses 1 through 21 today. I think we may be able to do the rest next Sunday. We may have to break that up. But you'll notice, you'll notice there, there are big things happening in chapter 6. In verse 4, we're told that this was taking place. So everything that's happening in chapter 6 is happening as the Passover feast is getting going. The Passover was to the Jews what the 4th of July is to our country. I think that helps us understand it. It, it, I I heard that as an explanation or a a description of it. I think it's very helpful to understand the Passover and how it's the sense of the, the excitement and the anticipation and the celebration. That's what the Passover is to the Jews, the 4th of July to our our country. It was a special celebratory time when they were looking back, recalling their freedom from Egypt and, but now, being under the rule of the Romans, they were also looking ahead, looking to the day where they would once again be set free from Roman rule. The original Passover was the time when, when God offered salvation to His people as they were slaves in Egypt. A, a spotless lamb had to be killed and its blood was put on the doorpost of every family's home who were putting their trust in the Lord's plan of salvation. And, and, at, and that night, they would eat the lamb fully and, and be filled and satisfied. And, and everyone who looked to God to save them that, that night and responded to his plan of salvation, was saved. The judgment of God passed over them. But everyone else in the land of Egypt 
who did not respond to his plan of salvation was struck by his judgment as every one of the firstborn were killed. The Passover then was this starting point. It was this point for the great exodus out of slavery to Egypt. When God filled his people full of his provision and in his great power set them free and even enabled them to cross over the Red Sea as if on dry ground and entered then into the wilderness. And sadly, the people began to grumble against God. Right? It's just jogging your memory. The people begin to grumble against God, forgetting so quickly how just his miraculous work to save them, his provision and his power and his goodness, forgetting it almost immediately. But God, in his kindness, even provides for them in the wilderness. He gives them bread from heaven, right? Manna. And, and yet, even then, they take for granted what the Lord's kindness has done towards them. And they continue to grumble and disobey. And even in the midst of all of that, you see Moses, who is tasked to lead the people. You see him meeting with God on the mountaintop and pleading with God on their behalf. Why, why do I rehearse all of that this morning? Because in the background of chapter 6, it's as if it is reliving all of that in different ways, but finding its fulfillment in Jesus. Isn't that cool? The word just begins to open up. Jesus coming and he is fulfilling all of these things. It's chapter 5 sets us up for it. it. It showed us, if you remember, this has been two months ago, so if you remember, it, Jesus, it, it was speaking of, he's, he's kind of displaying this before um, the Pharisees, that he has all the authority and power. He, he is the Son of God. Him and God are, are one, and he is here. And immediately it launches into this, and in that, at the end of chapter 5, if he's the one with all the authority, the Pharisees are saying, well, there's no one greater than Moses, essentially. And Jesus is saying, oh, Moses doesn't have anything on me. Everything Moses wrote was pointing to me. And it leads us into chapter 6, where you just begin to see Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is providing a greater exodus Jesus is providing a greater salvation. He himself is going to literally say he is this greater bread of heaven. The same way God provided this bread of heaven in the wilderness, Jesus is this greater bread. We're going to see, see more of that in the coming weeks. Jesus is able to truly satisfy the longing soul just over and over again. So keep this, keep this in the back of your mind. Jesus is fulfilling all of these things as all of this plays out in chapter 6. So think Exodus. Think manna in the wilderness. Think crossing over water as if it's on dry ground. Think grumbling by people. Keep that tucked away in your hearts. We will see Jesus in verses 1 through 21 shepherd his people in the wilderness and walk them across this, these stormy waters. It's beautiful. We're going to see Jesus and just how extraordinary he truly is. So in, in light of that, John has written this in such a way that the pathway to get us to see just how extraordinary Jesus is, 
is through seeing extraordinary problems first. And that's the first point of the sermon. Only two points. The ex- first, the extraordinary problems of these passages, these verses. When we first look at these two stories, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, they can seem like two completely separate issues, like they almost don't need to be preached on the same Sunday together, like they're just two different things happening. But really, when you look closely, they go together. We see that they do, they harmonize with one another, one another to show something. There, there are problems Here's what we see. There are problems too great for the people involved to handle. Problems out of their control. Both stories show us the same thing. These problems that are too great for them to handle on their own. Verses 1 through 15, Jesus crosses over the Sea of Galilee. People are seeing Jesus miraculously heal the sick. And so a large crowd begins to follow him. This crowd was at least made up of 5,000, possibly more, if you include women and children in this number. It seems that they had counted the men, but, but we know there was at least one child there. And so many people believe, hey, that if you include women and children, this could be upwards of 10 to 15, 20,000 people. Either way, we don't even need to speculate because 5,000 alone is a ton of people, right? So we don't have to necessarily add to that number to try to make this bigger than what it is. 5,000 at least people here who are hungry people. And if you have 5,000 hungry people, that's a big problem. That's an extraordinary problem. They follow him to a place outside of any cities, essentially a wilderness where there is nowhere to get food. And seeing the crowd of hungry people, Jesus turns to Philip and asks him, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse 7, the the disciple Philip points out they don't have enough money to care for these people. He says 200 denarii, which if you do the math, it turns out to be somewhere around eight months of income. So he says, if we, if we even had eight months of income, eight months worth of bread would not be enough for each of these people to even get a little bit. That's an incredible problem. John is trying to help us see this was a big problem. This is out of their control. It, it, saints, whenever you start hearing those kinds of things in the scripture, it's, it is, one, it's setting up Jesus to shine brightly. And two, it's helping us relate Because we live lives with problems out of our control, right? There are so many problems. Think this day, I could think back to my week and I'm like, I can name, I could just start naming problems that I can't fix on my own. When the word of God starts calling these things out, there's a reason why. It's painting a picture for us. It's, oh man, I can, I I know what that's like. I, I see that there's these problems just, No one can do anything about this. Even if we had eight months of income, can you imagine? Eight months of income, we could not take care of this problem, Jesus. The disciple Andrew comes up. He tells Jesus, the only food that's available is there's this one boy who has five barley loaves of bread and two fish, but but what are they for so many, he says. So here's what we have, but, but what are they compared to the problem we have? You can almost hear the sense of hopelessness 
come out and, and helplessness come out of these two followers of Jesus. We have this problem, and this is a big problem. It's a problem of provision. There is a great need that needs to be met, and we have no idea how this need will get met. It's this problem that's brought the disciples and everyone else involved to a point where it is completely out of their control. They are looking around and they have concluded there is nothing we can do about this. There's absolutely nothing in our own power. Every natural answer that we would have to this circumstance will not fix this. Our own smarts, our own thoughts, our own wisdom, our own knowledge won't fix this. Our effort won't fix this. We are helpless in this moment. That's the picture that's being painted. We are absolutely helpless in this moment. Verses 16 through 21, we see the same thing. In the midst of this crowd surrounding them, Jesus had went away on top of the mountain by himself. And we know in other Gospels, he's gone to pray. And the disciples have gotten into a boat without Jesus. And we're actually told Jesus, in other Gospels, Jesus sent them away. Go get in the boat and go ahead and go. He knows what's, what's going on here. The disciples have gotten into a boat without Jesus. They begin to go back across the Sea of Galilee. But as they are rowing across they get several miles in, so essentially they're in the middle of this sea, and it becomes dark. A storm arises, the sea becomes rough, and the wind is blowing strong, we're told. The Gospels, Matthew and Mark, they, they, they make sure we get, we get the picture here. It says that they were beaten by the waves, and the wind was against them. Just here, this, Another big problem. Nothing, nothing I can do about this. Nothing we can do about this. That we're beaten by the waves. The wind is against us. What are we supposed to do? How can we? We're helpless in this. They can't control this. Their own effort won't fix this. No matter how hard they paddle, there's no hope getting to the other side. There's nothing they can do to stop this. These are moments of helplessness with problems that are out of their control. In both of these stories, those involved are encountering, encountering very real physical problems. But here's the thing. Here's, the, here's what's so interesting. That or those actually aren't the greatest problems that we're meant to see in these verses. I think often when we come and we read this, that's where we stop. Those are the greatest problems. People need to be fed. We're caught in a storm. Those are real problems. Don't, we're going to talk about that. Those are very real problems. But those actually aren't the greatest problems that we're meant to see here. These physical problems have actually revealed a greater problem. These verses are actually drawing our attention to the problem of this. The problem of how we view Jesus. That's the problem. That's the great problem that these physical problems are allowing to be revealed and bubble up. John, or excuse me, the helpless moments are serving, actually, to reveal how people don't understand who Jesus truly is, which informs what they believe Jesus can actually do. In verse 5, when Jesus turns to Philip and asks the question, 
Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? John tells us in verse 6, the very next verse, he says, He said this to test him, for he knew what he would do. Jesus knew the answer to the question. Right? We all know that. Jesus knew the answer to the problems. He's not left surprised by what's happening or wondering what he should do as if he was caught off guard. He wants his disciples to know the answer. He wants them to grab hold of what the answer is. And I'll, I'll help you. Jesus is the answer, right? Jesus is the answer. The disciples had seen, this is so, oh man, I can so relate to these guys. Oh man, we'll, we'll unpack this more. The disciples had seen Jesus turn water into wine. I almost feel like if I just saw that, my whole life would be changed. They've seen him turn water into wine. They've seen him miraculously heal thousands of people by this point, right? Just people in droves are being brought to him. He's just healing them on the spot. They've heard him say that he's the very son of God. Even the Pharisees understood what he was getting at. He's making himself one with God. He's claiming to be God. They've heard him say these things. He is the answer. The, the one whom the scriptures have said makes a table in the wilderness to feed his people in Psalm 78. This is an impossible problem for us, but not for you, Jesus. That should have been the answer for Philip and, and Andrew, right? Where should we go, Jesus asked. The, the right answer would have been, Jesus, I'm looking out and it looks impossible for us. I can't do anything about this. We don't have money we don't have help. We're about not by a city to even go buy things. The only food we have is this little bit here from this little boy. And it's interesting because even typically when if it was barley loaves like that, it would have been perceived as this was a lower income food. And so even what we have is like, is like lesser than the less. But the right answer is, as we've seen Jesus you would expect them to say, Jesus, I can't do anything about this. I don't know what to do. And then they just turn to Jesus and say, but, but don't you know what to do? You're God. The Son of God made flesh. Surely you can do something about this. But that's not how they answer, is it? That's not even where their minds go. How quickly they have forgotten who is with them? Oh boy. Oh man, we could stop there, I think. Application to my own heart as I say those words. How quickly they have forgotten who is with them. How good he always is. How good he has been. How powerful he is. He took this man who was lame for 30 years up and walk like nothing how quickly we've forgotten him how quickly we've forgotten his heart and his goodness and his power to accomplish whatever good he sets out to accomplish he's standing right here he's talking to me but how how quick we've forgotten who he is and aren't we prone to the very same thing Identity amnesia. 
we forget who Jesus is, how good he is, how he loves his people, how he cares for his own in their need, how nothing can stop him from accomplishing the good he sets himself to do towards his people. He may not do exactly what I want him to do. He may not give exactly what I want him to give, but he knows every true need I have before I even ask for it. And he is the one who promises to provide what he knows we really need. But how often, how often, what we really view of Jesus is revealed when we face problems that are out of our control. How often what we really view of Jesus comes out of us when problems that are out of our control arise. Our doubts of Him, our wrong thoughts of Him, They're all revealed by problems out of our control. They they take what would normally be hidden when life is just kind of all peachy and it allows it to just bubble up out of us. When we're out of control, oh my, how we really see Jesus and what we really think of him begins to come out. But not so we can be condemned by even some of those wrong views. But so that we can exchange those wrong views for right views. Jesus doesn't allow it to be hidden because he wants to address our wrong views. And he allows us to go through problems that are out of our control so that those wrong views are bubbled up out of us. And they can't hide anymore. Problems that are out of our control, I would say then, are tools in the hands of Christ to reveal the hidden pockets of our hearts where we hide wrong views about him and they provide an opportunity for Jesus to teach us how to see him rightly. And they provide an opportunity for him to reveal who he truly is to us. We're good at hiding People are following Jesus. Yeah, we're all on. We're on board. All the while, there are these wrong thoughts of him. And these moments are helping draw it all out. Philip and Andrew would have answered Jesus' question very differently had they remembered who he is. Right. They would have answered very differently had they just remembered who he is. Their hopelessness could have been exchanged for hopefulness. And they, as they recalled just who was standing with them. But they weren't the only ones whose view of Jesus fell short in this passage. They're not the only ones whose view of Jesus was, was off a bit. We'll, we'll see more of this next week in the following verses. But the crowd of people, the crowd of people, they don't see Jesus as God for who he fully is. We're told they, they do consider him a prophet sent by God, which at first we would say, well, that sounds good. That's kind of close, right? He's, he's clearly someone supernatural, right? So we're, we almost read that and we're like, oh, good. They're finally getting it. 
We said Deuteronomy 18, he is the fulfillment of that, right? There would be one who would be sent of God like Moses who would speak to you on behalf of God. This is him. He's fulfilling this. He is the prophet we've been waiting for. And we could say, well, that's really close. It's almost right. But what we really find out, both in these verses and in the rest of chapter 6, is that they really, really, really weren't viewing Jesus rightly. After, after seeing him as a prophet, they wanted to make him king by force. And Jesus perceived they're going to make me king by force. But what we learn about them is that the motivation of their hearts seems to be that they actually are less impressed about Jesus' divine nature. Right? He's just said these things in chapter 5. He's, he's this God. He's healed tons of sick people. He's doing miraculous things. But it's almost as if later on they could care less really about those claims and yet they care more about him feeding them. Well, here next week, Jesus actually highlights that. They're following, not even because of the size, because their bellies are full. So they, they see him as a prophet, sure. They want to make him king, that sounds good. But really their motivations are, this guy can feed me. He can help my life prosper. I want him to be my king. He can maybe set us free from the Romans. Life will be real good at that point. Let's make him king. Let's have him fill our bellies. To have a king who can constantly fill our bellies full. Oh man, let's, let's make him who can make our nation prosper. Let's make him king. That is just what we want and what we need. We want to keep living the life how we want. We want, we want to keep doing what, we're, what, what, what we want. We're not concerned necessarily with worshiping Jesus. We just want him to give us a good, carefree life. That is essentially what's happening in chapter 6. We're not concerned with worshiping Jesus. You would think bread and fish created out of nothing, thousands of people fed, you would think droves would just bow down before him and say, surely you are God. That's not the response. There's, it's, rather, it's this, surely he can make my life good. Surely he can, he can provide and we can have a happy life if he just becomes king. I honestly think this is our first glimpse of cultural Christianity and the prosperity gospel. Right here. John chapter 6, isn't that something? We don't care about his glory. Just give me what I want and make my life good. Jesus didn't come so that he could be our puppet king. That's how the prosperity gospel and cultural Christianity treats Jesus. Like he's a puppet king. Yeah, he's king, all right, but just do whatever I want. Make my life prosper. Make our nation prosper. Isn't that what we're seeing so much of? Jesus is being like dragged into this political atmosphere of our society. Just make it, make it prosper, Jesus. Maybe get a few extra votes. Throw Jesus out there to these, these Christians. Get a few extra votes there. It's wrong. It's not wrong to be a Christian and be a president. We pray for that. 
But that's, you, what you see so much of is trying to use Jesus like this. Just make my life good. Make it prosper, Jesus. Jesus didn't come to be our puppet king to just do whatever we want. In fact, how did he respond to them? How did he respond in this passage? It says, for those, those who viewed him merely that way, what did he do? He actually withdrew from them. The most extraordinary problem of this passage wasn't feeding the 5,000, though that was amazing and people needed to eat, and we'll talk about that, or the, the tempest, the storm. But it's what those things bubbled out of people's hearts. The most extraordinary problem was how we view Jesus. John wants us to view him rightly. So let's look then at this extraordinary Jesus, the last half of the sermon. Let's look at the extraordinary Jesus. That's the second point. And in this point, we sort of have three sub-points. First, the extraordinary care of Jesus. Though, so, yeah, so here, everything I just said, and now let me speak to some of that. Though we must absolutely resist the prosperity gospel that runs rampant in cultural Christianity, sometimes I think... It's, it's, it's like we live this way. It's either prosperity gospel, which is all about meeting needs and cares less about the glory of God, or we fall on the other side where it is all about the glory of God. And you know what? Jesus doesn't care about that need. And it almost seems as if Jesus could care less about people. Right? It either seems like it's one or the other. It's prosperity gospel this Jesus who just, it's all touchy and feely and needy and it's like no glory whatsoever. We don't obey him. And then it's the other side. We either fall in that category where it's, it's all his glory. We're going to preach through this passage and we're not going to talk anything about him providing for people. It's just him fulfilling a greater Moses and a greater Exodus. We can feel that way. I think biblically there's a healthy balance in the middle. Let's just seek to be middle Christians. Let's just seek to be a middle ground church on, in these types of things. A healthy, balanced church. It is absolutely about His glory. He must get His glory. May we live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. May He get all the glory in every part of our life. But it's not disconnected from His gladness to help people and to love people, and his heart of kindness and care and compassion. May we be balanced Christians. When we look at Jesus of the Bible, we see he is this incredibly balanced Savior. He is both. He cares about his glory. And do you know what he did here? He cared about feeding 5,000 people. He cared about feeding these people. He does really care about His glory. And He deserves to be treasured and exalted. And He really does care about people. He really does care about those who cry out to Him. He really does care about those little precious sheep who come to Him. As messed up and as stinky as we are. He really does care about us like a good shepherd does. He cares about feeding you. And meeting you in the midst of your true need. He cares about what you need. He cares about the problems of your heart and of your life because he's a good shepherd. That's what good shepherds do. They don't neglect the sheep. Hired hands neglect the sheep. 
Hired hands don't care about sheep. He's the good shepherd who loves his sheep, who wants to see them cared for and fed. He's a good shepherd. Oh, my. Sometimes he doesn't give us what we think we need, right? But that doesn't make him any less good. It doesn't make him any less of a shepherd. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about us. But sometimes he doesn't give us what we think we need so that we can better understand just what it is we truly need. He cares about what we truly need. So look at Jesus in this passage. This crowd of people following him into the wilderness, they come completely unprepared, which you would say, for some of us, we're sitting, well, that's so unwise. Look what you got yourselves into here. You should have thought about that before you dragged your family into the wilderness. Right? Sometimes we can approach the passage this, this way. So silly. They, they come unprepared. When it's all said and done, Jesus knows how they're going to respond to him. He knows so many of them have wrong views of him. But yet he knows what he's going to do. <laughs> the crowd of people this size, who knows what kind of sin issues they're dragging along following Jesus, yet aware of it all. Jesus didn't have to take responsibility for them. He had every right to turn them away. He had every right to look down on them like we just said. What did you guys do? How unwise you are. You got, you got yourself in this position. Get yourself out of this. But how does he respond to them? He lifted up his eyes and looked upon them and takes notice of their need and purposes to care for them. I think, I think these little details grab at our hearts. He sits them down in a grassy place. Does that not echo Psalm 23, the good shepherd to us? He even sits them down in a grassy place. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Does that not echo this good shepherd who loves his people? Oh my. He sits them down and feeds them fully. Oh. They ate as much as they wanted, and yet 12 full baskets were left over. It doesn't mean there's always 12 full baskets left over. Right? I think some would say that. It doesn't mean that, but it does show the extraordinary, undeserving care and generosity of Jesus. If you are His his eyes are always set upon you, taking notice of your need. When we look at the Scripture, that's what we see of our God. His eyes are upon those who are His, and He knows their need before they even ask it. Sometimes I think we would come to this passage and just say, well, yeah, we're going to focus on the 12 baskets symbolic of the 12 tribes and he's fulfilling all those needs i think that is a part i think it could be a part of what's happening here jesus fulfilling the need 12 baskets full the apostles are bringing those i think there's stuff happening there but it's almost like we just fixate ourselves on those things we forget jesus actually cares for people he actually cares for people who are in need he cares for you in your need isn't that encouraging this precious shepherd who will sit them down in a grassy place and feed them. Oh, he's a good shepherd. 
Those are the types of truths, precious saints, I feel personally. I just sit in my office and I look at and then I just sit and I just brew on that and just thank God. We could use some more brewing on passages like that, truths like that. Second, the extraordinary power of Jesus. Not only, uh, so the extraordinary care of Jesus, the extraordinary power of Jesus. Not only does he have a heart that cares about the problems at hand, he has the power to do something about it. He has creative power. He is the word that dwelled with God, the, the Father in eternity past, creating all things, bringing something out of nothing. And here he is still doing the same thing, making something out of Nothing. The creative power of God to call into existence that which didn't exist before. Not only can he heal the sick, restore what was broken and ruined, and make strong what is weak, he can make something out of nothing. And this is amazing and incredibly encouraging. Oh my. If he can do that with bread and fish, what can he bring about in the hearts and minds of men and women? If he can, where we feel helpless to do anything to bring about change or good, whether in those we love or even in ourselves, he is able. He is able to create something out of nothing. Precious saints, for a pastor, this is the very truth pastors cling to. He can create something out of nothing. Where there is a lack of wisdom in that person or a lack of peace in that person or a lack of affection in that person. When left to ourselves, we would say, we're hopeless. I can't do anything to change them. I don't have anything to offer them. What does the pastor cling to? What does the under-shepherd cling to? To the great shepherd who is powerful and able to bring something out of nothing to create within even the hearts of people and the minds of people. Oh my. There have been so many times that is just the very truth I cling to. Precious saints, cling to those truths for one another. Where you see, where you see one another needs to grow, where you see, where maybe you have a wayward friend or a wayward family member or child what is the truth you cling to? That Jesus can create something out of nothing. He can take the nothingness of my child's heart who's wayward and hard and He can give life to it. And I cling to those truths. That He is able. Precious saints, and we never move on from those truths. We don't move on from them. Sometimes I feel like, well, I just got to be careful. It's like, I'd rather talk about antinomianism or, or all this, like start using all these words. I just want to go big words. And we do need to do it. We need to know what justification is. We need to know what reconciliation is. We need to know what it is to be redeemed. We need to know what these words mean. But sometimes we move on from the simplest of truths. We have a Jesus who is able. Meditate upon that. Meditate upon it. As you meditate upon the justification of Christ that you've been counted righteous by His righteousness. No, it was by the power of God He is able to do all things. How did you come to faith? Because Jesus is able. 
He's able to, take, to make something out of nothing, and he did that in my heart. And it's true for my son, it's true for my daughter, it's true for my mom, it's true for my dad, it's true for my cousins, it's true for my neighbors, it's true for my coworkers. And I'm clinging to those truths. Don't stop clinging to these truths. Jesus is able to create something out of nothing. Not only does he have creative power, he has power over... Well, let me pause. Please know. Oh, I think you know me. I know we may have some who are newer here. I am all about knowing justification. And we need to grow in understanding what antinomianism is. And we need to know all of these types of things. But boy, we don't move on from just knowing Jesus. Not only does he have creative power, he has power over creation. The storm is crashing against the disciples. How could help ever get to them? How could help ever get there? How, how could they ever get to where they need to be, to where they're going? And yet Jesus sees them and comes to them walking on the water, on this storm, this incredible storm that's tossing people like us all over the place, yet he walks on it as if it's dry ground. The rules of what's natural are subject to him. He is able to do whatever it is he sets his heart to do. Oh my. Truths like this should make us praying people, right? Shouldn't truths like this make us praying people and glad people? There is no place he cannot get to us. There is no place he, we cannot go where he has lost all control. Even in the most of severe storms. J.C. Ryle, I love, in the 1800s, says this in regards to this truth. Let the Christian take comfort in the thought that their Savior is Lord of waves and winds, of storms and tempests and can come to them in the darkest hour, walking upon the sea. There are waves of trouble far heavier than any on the Lake of Galilee. There are days of darkness which test the faith of the holiest Christian. But let us never despair if Christ is our friend. He can come to our aid in an hour when we do not think, and in ways that we did not expect. And when He comes, all will be calm. Oh, I love that. And when he comes, all will be calm. There is no place he cannot get to us. There is no one he cannot get to. There is no place we can go where he has lost all control. When he comes, all will be calm. Last, the extraordinary identity of Jesus. The extraordinary identity of Jesus. Jesus' true identity was forgotten by the disciples. That's what we see in the story. His identity was forgotten by the disciples. The crowd identified him as prophet and wanted to make him their earthly king. And it all leads us to verse 20 and 21. When Jesus identifies himself. The disciples are frightened as they see Jesus walking on water and what he says to them to comfort them ties this entire passage together. 
It ties, it's this identifying marker that it's all leading towards. Oh, he's this prophet. He's this king. The disciples, we forgot Jesus is even who he says he is. And it leads all to this. How can he do what he has done? How can he create out of nothing and then walk on the sea? How can he care so well and powerfully provide like he has? What does he tell them in order to calm them? The ESV interprets Jesus saying, It is I, do not be afraid. But the original language, when you look at it, it says, Ego emi. Ego emi. And when you look, when that's interpreted in other places, how is it interpreted? Simply yet powerfully interpreted as oh, I am. That's ego and me. I am. Jesus identifies himself when he's coming on the storm. The storm is there. They're paddling. It, the wind is blowing against them. The waves crashing against them. They're frightened when they see him. And the comfort he gives them is hey, don't worry, guys, I'm going to stop the storm. Don't worry, guys, about this problem out of your control. No, the comfort he gives them is, I'm going to let you know who I am. I am. Do not be afraid. I am is what he tells them. Do not be afraid. And it's, what's the response of the disciples? They're glad. And they receive him into the boat, and immediately he takes them to dry land and safety. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, when the Lord first identifies himself to Moses and the Lord is setting out to save his people from Egypt, how does he identify himself to Moses? He says, I am who I am. I am. Tell them, when you go, Moses, you know what you tell them? You tell them, I am sent you. It's the way God has identified himself back in the Old Testament. He, he is the set-apart one whom no one and nothing can compare to just simply yet profoundly, I am. And the comfort he gives Moses that day was that the great I am, I am with you. Do not be afraid. And Jesus in identifying himself in the same way here in this passage, in applying the same truths to the disciples' heart, all these extraordinary problems that are out of your control, where do you look? It's the answer, finally, to the question. Where do we go, Philip? Where do we look? Where do we turn for help? What, what do we do, Philip? And the answer is here. I am. Do not be afraid. Where do you look? We look to Jesus. Where do we run? We run to Jesus, the great I am. Precious saints, the great I am, Jesus himself, who was with his precious sheep and his disciples on that day, in that storm, and on that problem in the wilderness, is the very same Jesus who's with us right now. Isn't that encouraging? Precious saints, that is the cry, in a sense, of these verses. This great I am who is able to conquer the problems that are completely out of our control. And we do know that's pointing to the greatest problem, right? The greatest problem where Jesus is headed. There's a greatest problem that none of us can control. And it's this problem of sin. 
It's the problem of the punishment coming for sin, the wrath of God, nothing we could do to save ourselves. It's the greatest storm out of our control. Yet Jesus threw himself into it. Threw himself into it. Taking on the full blunt of that storm so that we would know the calm. Oh, so that we would know what it is to have peace with God. Precious saints, there were so many times this week in different moments, whether it's personal health moments or just praying for people or whatever it might be, where I was reminded of this truth and I just ran to this. Jesus, you are not just some hired hand shepherd who doesn't care for the sheep, who can do nothing to help. I'm going into this or I'm walking through this knowing that you are the great I am who was with your people crossing through the Red Sea, who was with your people, your, your man in the lion's den, who was with your people since ages ago, who's with your people on this little mountain, side of the mountain here, who's with them in Galilee. Lord, you are the same one with me in my little office as my weak body. You're the same one with us. Precious saints, May that truth of Jesus being the answer, that Jesus being able, of Jesus' care and of who Jesus actually is, may it inform every part of our lives. May it comfort every part of our lives. May it be the steadying anchor of every part of our lives as we go into our week. Now, don't move on from this. I encourage you as you go throughout the week, as you encounter, we're, and we're stopping here, precious saints, Recall as you pray, as you're going into work, as you're going into the home. Parenting's hard. Work is hard in the workplace. Life is hard. There are extraordinary problems out of our control. Precious saints, recall that there is a Savior who is able to take care of your greatest need. Surely He can care for you in the midst of these present needs. There is a Savior who is both shepherd and is the great I Am who is with you. And may it comfort, may it enable you to walk through trouble and trial with hope. And may it sustain you as we live life in a wilderness, don't we? We say that often here. This is the wilderness of the world that we live in. We're waiting for the new garden. We're waiting for it. We're in the wilderness. Lord, sustain us in this wilderness. Christ Jesus, the great I am, sustain us in this as you did your people long ago. Let's pray.